Listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. This is Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. I'm your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist on America's Web Radio, with all the latest mental health related news. If it's about the mind, the brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress, this is where you'll hear about it first, without the hype and distortion of other media sources, with the benefit of more than 20 years in the practice of psychiatry, and along the way, trying to better inform the general public about mental illness and the treatments for it, as well as to reduce the stigma associated with having a psychiatric diagnosis and needing treatment for it. This is the April 23rd edition of Psychiatry Today. Of course, it will air for the first time at 7 p.m. on that date, but you can listen to it anytime you want, as many of you have, either playing back the podcast from AmericasWebRadio.com or downloading it from iTunes. And thank you so much to all of you listeners who uh, get the show from iTunes. Very much appreciative of your listenership. And we're going to start out this week's show by talking about a controversy that regular and longtime listeners will be familiar with, and, and that is the issue of taking antidepressants in pregnancy and what potential outcome this can have. Now, <clears throat> antidepressants, as you know, are very commonly prescribed to treat both depression and anxiety, even though they're called antidepressants, they are used to treat both types of symptoms. And therefore, there are going to be many women, young women of reproductive age, who are taking them, and therefore there are going to be women who are taking them and become pregnant, in many cases not knowing they're pregnant, until they have been pregnant for four, five, six weeks or more, while taking these types of medications. And there have been many, many articles written about this issue. Much, much research has been done to look at the outcome of potential effects of the antidepressant medications on the fetus. And the issue usually is looked at from both sides, meaning, okay, it's all well and good to look at what the medications may be doing to the unborn child, but it also must be taken into account what happens to the unborn child as a result of the mother dealing with depression. And regular and long-time listeners to the show will be familiar with my point of view, which is that the weight of the evidence shows that we have a lot more definite, exact information documenting the harmful effects of maternal depression on the unborn child than we do documented, consistently found detrimental effects of antidepressant medications on the unborn fetus. In other words, the weight of the evidence favors, in my opinion, favors keeping the mother feeling well mentally and emotionally. Obviously, preferably that would be done without medication, maybe with psychotherapy or counseling alone, but if medication is necessary, in very 
um, few cases is it that the risks outweigh the benefits. Most often the benefits outweigh the risks. <clears throat> so now here comes yet another study that came out last Monday about uh, linking antidepressant use in pregnancy to increased risk of autism, but especially in boys for some reason. Now, it turns out what they did was they looked at boys with autism and found that they had been three times more likely to have been exposed to antidepressants known as SSRIs in the womb than typically developing children. And we're going to go over two different articles about this research. And, of course, along the way, I'll give you my own take on the information. Now, the, the new study found that boys whose mothers took SSRIs. Now, that's an acronym for Selective Serotonin Reuptake Inhibitor. That's a reference to the mechanism of action of a group of half a dozen antidepressant medications, and those include Prozac, Paxil, Zoloft, Luvox, Celexa, and Lexapro. And for mothers who took these drugs during pregnancy, uh, gave birth to boys that were also more likely to have developmental delays. The study was published online on April 14th and also in the May print issue of the journal Pediatrics. They found that prenatal SSRI exposure was almost three times as likely in boys with autism spectrum disorders relative to typical or normal development, with the greatest risk taking place when the exposure to the drug was in the first trimester, which means the first 12 weeks of pregnancy. Now, it's very, very important to point out here that while the study found an association between prenatal use of SSRI antidepressants and autism risk in boys, it did not prove a cause and effect relationship. In other words, this study uh, does not prove that mothers who took SSRIs during pregnancy are more likely to give birth to boys who have autism spectrum disorders. It's an association that's all. Even the study authors were quick to point out that there are risks to both the mother and the fetus from untreated depression. One of them was quoted as saying, it's a complex decision whether to treat or not treat depression with medications during pregnancy. There are so many factors to consider. We didn't intend for our study to be used as a basis for clinical treatment decisions. Women should talk with their doctors about SSRI treatments. And it's a credit to the authors that they came out and made that clear. And fortunately, the media didn't just sweep that under the rug for the sake of the interesting and controversial soundbite, but they reported on that as well. Other experts felt that the overall risk of having a child with autism remains extremely low, regardless of these findings. SSRIs, when used during pregnancy, cross the placenta 
and increased levels of the hormone serotonin in the fetus. Well, actually, that's kind of a gross oversimplification. Um, they do more than just increase levels of serotonin. It's actually not a change in the absolute level per se. But clearly in the mother, it affects the flow of serotonin in certain pathways in the brain, and we feel it may do that in the fetus as well. <clears throat> and this is how the drugs decrease depression. And it turns out that one guess is that approximately 4% of all pregnancies um, include women who are taking SSRIs. About one in three children with autism may be found to have abnormal, abnormal serotonin levels, which could lead to the development of abnormal brain circuitry, or perhaps they're a manifestation of abnormal development of brain circuitry, which may play a role in the development of some autism symptoms. This new study is the latest in an ongoing debate about SSRI use during pregnancy and its possible association to autism spectrum disorders. Other studies on SSRI use in pregnancy have produced conflicting findings. One study published in the November 2011 issue of Archives of General Psychiatry that included nearly 300 children with autism spectrum disorders found double the risk of autism when the mother had used SSRIs with a stronger link to SSRI use during the first trimester. Another study published in the December 19, 2013 issue of New England Journal of Medicine included almost 4,000 children with autism spectrum disorders. This study did not find a significant association between autism and SSRI exposure during pregnancy. And that's a much larger sample size than the current study, which was 966 mother-child pairs. Of those, nearly 800 children were male. The average age of the children at the time of the study was nearly four years. About 500 of the children had an autism spectrum disorder. 154 had some type of developmental delay and 320 were typically developing children. SSRI exposure was lowest in these typically, or another way of saying it, normally developing children, with just 3.4% of those exposed to SSRIs during pregnancy. For those with autism, SSRI exposure occurred in 5.9% of pregnancies and SSRI exposure occurred in 5.2% of pregnancies for children with developmental delays. When the researchers looked at boys and girls together, there was a trend toward a higher risk of autism and developmental delay. Most of the study children were male, and they would need a larger sample with more girls to get a better idea of the overall risk. But when the researchers separated the data on boys and girls, 
They found that boys with autism were three times more likely to have been exposed to SSRIs in pregnancy, and the rate was highest for those exposed during the first 12 weeks, the first trimester. The study authors also found that boys with developmental delays were three to five times more likely to have been exposed to SSRIs during pregnancy compared to typically developing children. Rates were highest with exposure during the third trimester. The study suggests there are some risks associated with SSRI exposure and that the risk is higher in boys. They also found the risk is highest with exposure during the first trimester and that is when early brain development is occurring. All right, well, we have a lot more to look at concerning this study and the controversy as a whole. We're going to take our first commercial break right here and be back with that as well as more mental health-related news. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. I'll be right back. Spring is in the air, literally. So follow Sniffles to Atlanta Center for Breathing Easy. Weeds, spores, grass, pollen. Airborne allergen levels are through the roof, putting your allergies into overdrive. It's time to followsniffles.com. Follow me and breathe easy. End your annual ritual of taking medication to alleviate facial pressure, facial pain, congestion, and headaches by treating the problem, not the symptom. Balloon sinuplasty just could be the cure you're looking for. This proven in-office procedure can have you breathing easy. Back to work the next day. Followsniffles.com. Follow me and breathe easy. Your severe sinus and nasal symptoms gone once and for all. Get lasting relief, a quick recovery, and start breathing easy again. Call us at 404-591-9100. That's 404-591-9100. Follow me and breathe easy. Followsniffles.com. Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. This is Dr. Susan Blank, Medical Director for the Atlanta Healing Center. Our team is able to offer a multitude of treatment options, such as quantitative EEG, also known as brain mapping, hormonal and nutritional assessments, neuropsychological testing, and cognitive therapy, along with traditional 12-step facilitation. And we can even offer you, if appropriate, a gentle medically managed detox. Please contact us at 770-696-9862. You're listening to America. WebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back. This is Dr. Scott Bay with you on Psychiatry Today. We're talking about the latest research supposedly claiming that SSRIs when taken during pregnancy will increase the risk of autism, especially in boys. Now, one expert was saying that even if other research confirms there's apparently much higher risk for boys after SSRI exposure. Women should know the risk is still low. If the risk of autism is around 1% now with all pregnancies and you raise it to 3% by taking an SSRI, that means 97% of the time you will not have a child with an autism spectrum disorder. 
and therefore the chances are still overwhelming that this will not happen to a woman's child, even if they do take an SSRI. I totally understand that small comfort to the mother of a, ch a child who does develop an autism spectrum disorder. However, uh, the association in this study that we're talking about between SSRI exposure during pregnancy and autism spectrum disorders is just that, an association. It does not mean causation, and that's very important for women to understand. It's very difficult to do a definitive study of this issue. The authors initially found no difference between the groups. It was only when they looked specifically at the gender-adjusted differences that they saw an association. We still cannot say that we know whether SSRIs cause more autism. And further research needs to be done to clarify this issue. The one thing that we really know with certainty is that depression is not good for pregnancy. Women who are depressed have bad outcomes in their pregnancies and their kids don't do well. We need to treat depression. There are psychotherapy options as well as medication options, but there needs to be made a reasoned decision between a pregnant woman and their doctor. And, of course, uh, it would be very ill-advised for a woman to stop their medication. Untreated depression is a serious risk, and women need to discuss their choice with their doctor and have an individualized risk-benefit assessment. <clears throat> Let's talk about another article about the same research. <clears throat> now, taking antidepressants during pregnancy has always involved a balancing of possible benefits and risks, but so too does skipping the medication when a mother has depression. And the researchers who did this study finding the increased risk of autism or developmental delays if a mother takes SSRIs during pregnancy found that there was a similar increased risks, uh, increased risk if the mother simply had anxiety or depression. So it definitely is not clear whether the higher odds of autism and developmental delays were due to the SSRI antidepressants that the mothers took, or was it due to the mothers having anxiety and or depression in the first place? And is that the reason for the association, or is there some other reason altogether? And again, they looked at 966 mother-infant pairs, examining developmental disorder status, mother's use of antidepressants, the mother's mental health history, and the socioeconomic status of the families. <clears throat> and among the mothers of other children, 5.9% of the mothers with children of autism and 5.2% of the mothers with developmentally delayed children had taken SSRIs during pregnancy. So they found 3.4% had taken SSRIs during pregnancy. And again, they found a higher risk in boys becoming autistic, and uh, especially in the first trimester. 
Now, if mothers took antidepressants during their last trimester, the boys' odds of developmental delays increased even more to five times the odds of children whose mothers did not take SSRIs in pregnancy. However, when the researchers looked at mothers who had an anxiety or mood disorder, they found similar rates of autism and developmental delays among the children. Again, so, this, so even though the study found an increase in odds for autism or developmental delays among mothers taking SSRIs in pregnancy, this increased risk could have actually been due to mental health conditions that led the mothers to take the medications in the first place. If mothers with anxiety or mood disorders such as depression or bipolar disorder have children with similar risks for developmental disorders as mothers taking SSRIs, then the risk may be more related to the underlying condition than the medication. And because maternal depression itself carries risks for the fetus, the benefits of prenatal SSRI use should be carefully weighed against potential harms. Now, the research was funded by the National Institute on Environmental Health Sciences, the MIND Institute, and a group called Autism Speaks. So this had nothing to do with any drug company or other industry funding, and that makes sense because really there is no pharmaceutical that's specifically able to treat uh, the disabilities associated with autism. Well, again, the bottom line is that while the study can show an association, it doesn't prove that when a woman takes an SSRI during pregnancy, she's more likely to give birth to a child, especially a boy, with either a developmental delay or autism. And uh, as with all previous studies of this sort, the benefits of preventing maternal depression must be weighed against whatever the potential risks are of the medication. Uh, because we still, even at this point, know more about the risks of untreated maternal depression in terms of a negative outcome to the fetus than we do about the negative effects of antidepressant medication on the fetus. Well, we are going to turn our attention next to a subject that's important to many, many people, especially those of the baby boomer generation. We're all very concerned about our memory, right? So the name of this article caught my eye right away. It says, why we keep losing our keys. Well, wouldn't it be nice to know that, especially if the information were reassuring. Well, <clears throat> the article talks about the fact that everyday memory lapses hit at any age and also promises to talk about how to train your brain to find things faster. It turns out there's just some useful tips and hints, which are mostly common sense, but if you're not already following them, should be helpful. So let's go over that. Misplacing keys and phones are the result of everyday memory or cognitive lapses. 
Again, cognitive or cognition refers to memory, thinking, attention, concentration. And they're the result of failure in our working memory. These are the norm. But what are some of the factors that can affect our propensity to lose or misplace things? You've put your keys somewhere, and now they appear to be nowhere. Certainly not in the basket by the door they're supposed to go in. And now you're 20 minutes late for work because you can't find them. Kitchen counter, nightstand, bookshelf, work bag. Wait, finally, there they are, under the mail you brought in last night. Losing things is irritating, and yet we are forgetful people. Did you know the average person misplaces up to nine items a day? And one-third of respondents in a poll said they spend an average of 15 minutes each day searching for items. Cell phones, keys, and paperwork top the list. That, according to an online survey of 3,000 people, published in 2012 by a British insurance company. Everyday forgetfulness isn't a sign of a more serious medical condition like Alzheimer's disease or other types of dementia. And while it can worsen with age, minor memory lapses are the norm for all ages. Our genes are at least partially to blame. Stress, fatigue, and multitasking can exacerbate our propensity to make such errors. Such lapses can also be linked to more serious conditions like depression and attention deficit hyperactivity disorders. It's the breakdown at the interface of attention and memory. That breakdown can occur in two spots. When we fail to activate our memory and encode what we're doing, where we put down our keys or glasses, or when we try to retrieve the memory. When you encode a memory, the hippocampus, a central part of the brain involved in memory function, takes a snapshot which is preserved in a set of brain cells. These cells can be activated later with a reminder or a cue. It is important to pay attention when you put down an item or during encoding. If your state of mind at retrieval is different than it was during encoding, that could pose a problem. Case in point, you were starving when you walked into the house and put down your keys. When you then go to look for them later, you're no longer hungry, so the memory may be harder to access. That's right, your state of mind when you did something or put something down actually plays into your ability to recall where you put it. The act of physically and mentally retracing your steps when looking for lost objects can work. Again, a common sense approach. Think back to your state of mind when you walked into the house. For example, were you hungry? The more you can make your brain at retrieval like the way it was when you laid down the original memory trace, the more successful you will be in locating the object. All right, well, we certainly have a lot more to talk about where this subject is concerned, but we're going to take our next commercial break. We'll have more on common issues with memory and forgetfulness, as well as other mental health-related topics. 
You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. I'll be right back after this break. When gardening is part of your life, it brings so much. Healthy eating, the freshest, most local produce, and playing in the dirt. At BonniePlants.com, you'll find all you need to succeed. When you grow Bonnie veggie and herb plants in beds or containers, you'll know where your food comes from. Homegrown veggies and herbs ready for cooking, eating, and enjoying. And you did it. So get growing with Bonnie Plants. Hi, I'm Paisley McDonald, and I'd like to invite you to listen to my show, At Home with Paisley, every week, Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern, for practical advice and stylish living for your home and office. This is Michael Gano with Insight to Israel. Every day, the Israeli Defense Force finds itself on the front line of the war with the militant arm of Islam. Surrounded by enemies from within and without, they fight for the only Jewish state. Military service is mandatory, ladies serving two years and men serving three right out of high school. While young people in other democracies are busy traveling or attending university, Israeli men and women gear up for basic training. In a world of heads of state, politicians, ambassadors, diplomats, and a leftist media, many times our voice at the grassroots level is drowned out. So we started an ongoing project called Hershey's for Heroes. Patriot conservatives from all over the U.S. are sending Hershey's chocolate bars with a note of thanks for defending Israel. Won't you join us by sending a sweet message to the IDF? For information, please see my Facebook page at Michael Gano. Thank you, God bless Patriot Conservatives, and God bless Israel in her struggle for sovereignty and security. Hello, this is Michael Daly with Atlanta Healing Center. We know that addiction is a brain disease. Addiction is a family disease. Addiction is a treatable disease. We have a caring professional staff with over 30 years experience to help you and your loved ones in your recovery. You can reach us at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. Dr. Scott Bay with you. And we're talking about this great article. It goes into why we're always losing our keys and why we shouldn't worry about it and what we can do about it. Now, in a recent study, researchers in Germany found that the majority of people surveyed about forgetfulness and distraction had a variation in the D2 receptor gene, <clears throat> that's dopamine type 2, it leads to a higher incidence of forgetfulness when people have this particular variation. And according to the study, 75% of people carry a variation that makes them more prone to forgetfulness. Just to make the point, it's very, very common. Now, <clears throat> That study is currently in the online version of the journal Neuroscience Letters and will probably be published soon. It was based on a survey filled out by 500 people who were asked questions about memory lapses, perceptual failures, that is, for example, say, failing to notice a stop sign, and psychomotor failures, for example, bumping into people on the street accidentally. The individuals also provided a saliva sample for molecular genetic testing. And it turns out about half of the total variation of forgetfulness among a population can be explained by genetic effects, likely involving dozens of gene variations. The buildup of what psychologists call proactive interference helps explain 
how we can forget where we parked the car when we park in the same lot but different spaces every day. Memory can be impaired by the buildup of interference from previous experiences, so it becomes harder to retrieve the specifics, like which parking space. A study conducted by research at the Salk Institute for Biological Studies in California found that the brain keeps track of similar but distinct memories, where you parked your car today, for example, in a structure called the dentate gyrus, which is part of the hippocampus. There, the brain stores separate recordings of each environment, and different groups of brain cells are activated when similar but non-identical memories are encoded and later retrieved. The best way to remember where you put something may be the most obvious. Find a regular spot for it, and somewhere that makes sense. If it's reading glasses, leave them by the bedside. Charge your phone in the same place. Keep a container near the door for keys, or a specific pocket in your purse. Many of my patients have one place in their house that's a catch-all for important things like keys, wallet, phone. Maybe it's a container or a basket right near the front door. Maybe it's a drawer. Also, another tip is to visualize a future task by associating it with the environmental cues that you expect will be present. For example, let's say you're going to the store and you want to remember to buy chicken, avocados, and lettuce at the grocery store. You can imagine the produce and meat departments and those items. And when you get to the store, this work that you did by visualizing it beforehand will help you avoid walking out of the store and forgetting one or more of those items. Cognitive functioning, particularly processing speed, peaks at age 20 and the brain shrinks as we age. So things like multitasking and memory retrieval may take longer. And that's normal, it's natural, it's nothing to worry about. No need to be concerned about Alzheimer's or other types of dementia. Um, an increase in minor memory lapses may be related to other conditions, most commonly stress, depression, or anxiety. When the brain is in a state of depression, it does not function well. Thinking, concentration, and memory deteriorate. Likewise, when someone is extremely anxious and their entire central nervous system is keyed up, it's very difficult to encode information to, into memory and also difficult to retrieve it from memory. Also, medical conditions like sleep apnea, which result in fatigue, also interfere with memory and concentration. And finally, certain medications can also have a negative impact on memory. Now, here are some tips for finding lost items. This is according to Michael Solomon, a high school teacher in Baltimore, who first self-published How to Find Lost Objects in 1993 and republished it again about a year ago. And here are some of his strategies. One is don't look for it yet. 
Wait until you have some idea where to look. That is a suggestion that certainly will reduce the amount of time you spend looking and perhaps reduce your stress. And then the other is, it's where it's supposed to be. Look first where the object is normally kept. Maybe someone else returned it. Or maybe it was there when you first looked and you just overlooked it. And then there's what he calls domestic drift. Where was the object last used? Retrace your steps. And then there's the strategy of repeatedly saying to yourself what you're looking for. iPhone, iPhone, iPhone. I think this is something people commonly already do. And then there's the camouflage effect, meaning it's where you thought it was. It's just covered up with other things. And then look once, look well, as opposed to rummaging around haphazardly. Look once and look very, very well before you go off and looking in other places. Then there's the phenomena of the Eureka Zone. What he says here is that objects usually wander no more than 18 inches from their original location. Well, that's a statistical average, so uh, we all know there are certainly going to be exceptions to that. And finally, he says, que sera, sera. In other words, if all else fails, employ this rarely used principle. Your missing object may eventually just turn up. Well, that's not too helpful if you need to go somewhere and what you're looking for are the car keys. But I'm sure there are some situations where it's certainly better to just let go of the fact that you can't find what you're looking for and go on about your business. And uh, I agree, he's right. Most of the time, it will eventually turn up. Well, in any case, even if those strategies are not always helpful or applicable, I hope that it helps you to know that forgetfulness and misplacing things is quite common and uh, in fact it's more the norm than we think and certainly should not arouse any undue concern of dementia, Alzheimer's or otherwise. Now speaking of a mental health issue or trait that it's that is quite common and that most of us share here's another interesting article I thought I would talk to you about it says, do we all have a little OCD or obsessive compulsive disorder? Meaning, are these symptoms quite common among the general population, even in people who don't have the full-blown disorder? Well, those nagging concerns that interrupt our day-to-day -day lives aren't always a sign of serious mental distress. As it turns out, an overwhelming majority of us are pestered by some unwelcome thoughts. Obsessive-compulsive thinking is completely normal, with about 94% of the population experiencing some kind of unwanted or intrusive thought at some point. That statistic makes you wonder about the 6% of the population who don't experience it at all. And maybe thinking, hmm, is there something wrong with that group? Well, this research was published in the Journal of Obsessive Compulsive and Related Disorders. Yes, that's right. Uh, that group of disorders has its own journal. 
And the research would suggest that there is always someone else in the world who is also wondering whether or not they've left the oven on. Researchers surveyed 777 participants in 13 countries across six continents. The participants were asked whether they had experienced at least one unwanted intrusive thought in the past three months. These unwanted intrusive thoughts were distinguished from lingering worries or rumination. And it turns out nearly everyone in the sample reported at least one unwanted thought during the previous three-month period. And more than 90% of participants at most sites reported at least one kind of unwanted intrusive thought. Doubting intrusions were the most commonly reported types of intrusive thoughts. Repugnant intrusions, such as sexual or blasphemous thoughts, were the least commonly reported. Our brains are remarkable mechanisms, but sometimes they provide us with more information than we want or need. The human brain frequently generates thoughts of all types. Some are quite creative and wonderful, but some, unfortunately, are nonsensical and useless, and some are even extremely unpleasant or distasteful. These unwanted thoughts have deep roots, going all the way back to our primitive ancestors and their will to survive. Unwanted intrusive thoughts may be a nuisance, but even the strangest thoughts that cross our minds are really quite common. The biggest thing to take home from this study is that obsessions are normal. There's nothing pathological in and of itself in experiencing an obsessive thought. It's where it becomes so prevalent that it causes psychological distress or in and of itself becomes disabling that it is to be considered a disorder that may require treatment. But the unwanted intrusive thoughts are a common occurrence and usually they're harmless. It's how people react to these thoughts that's of the greatest concern. Most people are able to brush off these irritating yet benign thoughts. But for those with OCD, those uh, turning out or um, turning away or tuning out these intrusions rather can be much more difficult. Now, let's finish up our thoughts about the fact that OCD thoughts are very common and then we'll move on to other mental health related issues when we come back from this next commercial break. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. We'll be right back. Spring is in the air, literally. So follow Sniffles to Atlanta Center for Breathing Easy. Weeds, spores, grass, pollen. Airborne allergen levels are through the roof, putting your allergies into overdrive. It's time to followsniffles.com. Follow me and breathe easy. End your annual ritual of taking medication to alleviate facial pressure, facial pain, congestion, and headaches by treating the problem, not the symptom. Balloon sinuplasty just could be the cure you're looking for. This proven in-office procedure can have you breathing easy. Back to work the next day. Followsniffles.com. Follow me and breathe easy. Your severe sinus and nasal symptoms gone once and for all. Get lasting relief, a quick recovery, and start breathing easy again. 
Call us at 404-591-9100. That's 404-591-9100. Follow me, and breathe easy. FollowSniffles.com. This is Cheryl Linker, host of the Master Gardener Hour on America's Web Radio, Saturday morning at 11 o'clock. Join us as we keep things fun and interesting as we educate you in the world of master gardening. This is Dr. Susan Blank, Medical Director for the Atlanta Healing Center. Our team is able to offer a multitude of treatment options such as quantitative EEG, also known as brain mapping, hormonal and nutritional assessments, neuropsychological testing, and cognitive therapy, along with traditional 12-step facilitation. And we can even offer you, if appropriate, a gentle medically managed detox. Please contact us at 770-696-9862. When gardening is part of your life, it brings so much. Healthy eating, the freshest, most local produce, and playing in the dirt. At BonniePlants.com, you'll find all you need to succeed. When you grow Bonnie veggie and herb plants in beds or containers, you'll know where your food comes from. Homegrown veggies and herbs ready for cooking, eating, and enjoying. And you did it. So get growing with Bonnie Plants. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. Once again, your host, Dr. Scott Bay, with all your mental health-related news. And we're talking about how obsessive-compulsive type thoughts, especially unwanted intrusive thoughts, are quite common. Now, strange or unpleasant thoughts generally come and go from most people. But for those whose thoughts repeatedly plague them, therapy can provide much-needed relief, specifically cognitive behavioral therapy, which focuses heavily on talking through issues to combat obsessive thinking. In the cognitive model of obsessive-compulsive disorder, it's important not to pay a lot of attention to the content of the thoughts, but instead pay attention to the appraisal of the content that one makes. Virtually everyone has experienced some outrageous or upsetting thought, but understanding how to react to these intrusions can help people to get on with their lives and learn not to sweat the what-ifs. It's easier said than done, but what cognitive behavioral therapy helps the sufferer of obsessive-compulsive disorder do is when these unwanted intrusive thoughts bother them, uh, learn to dismiss them, ignore them, counteract them with different types of thoughts. And with the help of therapy and medications uh, and various different antidepressants can help relieve obsessive compulsive symptoms. Uh, When the thoughts occur, it's much, much easier to just dismiss them, ignore them, and move on. And for example, to decide I've already checked the door. It's locked. I can leave the house now. Okay, now here we have another topic on the show. And this time it is an interesting, to say the least, even bizarre study of marital relations. And I thought, wow, this is, this is just so interesting. I have to share this with you. The title of the article about the research is Feed a spouse, starve an argument? Well, this is what they mean. Is your spouse biting your head off at the end of the long day 
Well, it may be more hunger than anger that's fueling the bad mood. Now, this new study uses voodoo dolls and air horns to test spousal aggression. For the research, 107 middle-aged married couples were given glucose meters to keep tabs on their blood sugar. They checked it once in the morning on an empty stomach, and then again just before bed, every day for 21 days. The couples had been married on average for about 12 years. And this is the funny part, I think. Each husband or wife was also given a voodoo doll and told it represented their mate. At the end of each day, couples were asked to stick pins in the dolls to reflect the level of anger they were feeling toward their partners. They could use up to 51 pins at a time. Oh, these wacky social scientists, huh, folks? Well, this, the participants were asked to complete this task privately, since a glimpse at a much punctured doll might set off a spat all by itself, thus skewing the study results. You think so? Each spouse recorded the number of daily pins used in the dolls. Ladies and gentlemen, it amazes me what passes for scientific research. I wonder how much of a grant they got to do this and where they got it from. Now, <clears throat> at the end of the study, the couples visited a lab where they completed an additional test. The test pitted each spouse against each other in a video game. The winner of each round of the game was allowed to blast the losing spouse with an unpleasant noise through headphones. Within certain limits, that is, researchers only let the noise level go about as loud as a fire alarm, winners could choose how long and how loudly to blare the noise, which researchers recorded as another measure of aggression. I am not making this up, folks. This was really... Uh, supposedly a scientific study uh, that was published in a scholarly journal. Now, in reality, the couples weren't really playing against each other. They were playing against a computer, and it randomly chose the winner. So each person heard the unpleasant noise about the same number of times. At the end of the study, the researchers compared daily and average blood sugar levels with each partner's aggressive tendencies. The result? People with lower blood glucose readings, those that fell under 98 milligrams per deciliter, tended to be more aggressive toward their partners than those with evening readings over 121. So, in other words, low blood sugar made someone more aggressive, perhaps more irritable. Not too startling a revelation. Those results remained significant even after researchers took into account how satisfied people said they were in their relationships overall, and also the gender of the partner who is being aggressive. Women tended to have highly, I'm sorry, higher daily pin stick counts than men. Hmm. In a nutshell, the researcher said that means a hungry spouse is also more likely to be an angry spouse. Their take-home advice for marital bliss 
Eat before you speak. Make sure you don't talk to your spouse about something important when you're hungry, because hungry people are often cranky and irritable and angry. And we know that angry people are impulsive, and impulsive people say and do things they later regret. The study appeared online on the April on April 14th in a journal called Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. A prestigious journal, folks. The editors accepted this stuff for publication. Now there are some important limits to what the study can really prove. It was observational, which means it can't prove cause and effect. It could be, for example, that stress and strife cause lower blood sugar levels, not the other way around. And there wasn't any kind of a control or comparison group used, which means researchers don't have any idea how marital aggression. Might play out in couples who, for example, were asked to eat on a strict schedule to keep their blood sugar levels on a more even keel. In spite of those limitations, an expert who was not involved in the study pointed to its creative methods. Voodoo dolls and loud noises provide novel ways to measure marital aggression. It's a useful approach because it's not asking couples to describe their interactions. It's a way to actually look at emotional responses, according to one expert who was not involved with the new study. Another expert also noted the unusual study setup and said, "I do have to say that sticking pins to a doll is a creative design, and their methods are likely not full of holes." But other research shows that expressing anger leads to more, not less, anger. So I would interpret the results with great care. His advice: having romantic and healthy dinners with your partner, banning conflict-oriented discussions during fun times, such as having dinner together, can prevent both anger and low blood sugar. Well, so there you have it. Um. Okay, so if the experts in this field think that it's an interesting and creative study design, maybe I'm wrong to make fun of it so much.、Uh, and again,、uh, it certainly does seem to be intuitive that the, the assertion, rather, that hungry people are cranky and irritable, more prone to get angry, and more prone to let fly with some verbal aggression, somewhat impulsively. That they might regret and might not be so quick to express when they're better fed. Now, for more tips on having a healthy relationship, you can visit the National Healthy Marriage Resource Center, which you can find on the web at www.healthymarriageinfo.org/couples/couples. Index.aspx. Let me give out that URL again for the National Healthy Marriage Resource Center. It's www.healthymarriageinfo.org/couples/index.aspx. Or you can probably just Google the National Healthy Marriage Resource Center. 
Lastly on tonight's Psychiatry Today, 40 years on, bullying takes its toll on health and wealth. The negative social, physical, and mental health effects of childhood bullying are still evident 40 years later, according to new research by British psychiatrists. Researchers said the impact is persistent and pervasive, with people who were bullied when they were young more likely to have poorer physical and psychological health and poorer cognitive function by age 50. The effects of bullying are still visible four decades later with health, social, and economic consequences lasting well into adulthood. The findings were published in the American Journal of Psychiatry uh, on this past Friday, the um, 18th. They come from the British National Child Developmental Health Study. includes data on all children born in England, Scotland, and Wales during one week in 1958. included 7,771 children whose parents gave information on their exposure to bullying when they were aged 7 and 11, and then they followed these kids till they were 50. More than a quarter of the kids in the study, 28%, had been bullied occasionally, 15% bullied frequently, and rates that researchers say are similar to what takes place in Britain today. The study found that people who were frequently bullied were at increased risk of mental disorders, such as depression, anxiety, and experiencing suicidal thoughts. Bullying victims were also more likely to have lower educational levels, less likely to be in a relationship, and more likely to report lower quality of life. Men were more likely to be unemployed and earn less. The findings showed how important it is to move away from any perception that bullying is just an inevitable part of growing up. Teachers, parents, and policymakers should be aware that what happens in the school playground can have long-term repercussions. Well, folks, it's time to wrap up tonight's show. I hope that you enjoyed the mental health information that I enjoyed bringing to you and that you found it interesting and informative. And I hope that until we get together again next week, you have a wonderful, stress-free week. But if not, then you need to call Dr. Scott. Thank you and good night. And appreciate your listening. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.